Hello, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Global, where we connect you to global business knowledge today. I'm Alex. As you know, I'm here with Lemma. How are you, Lemma? Hello, Alex. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. I, I love having you here. Uh, for everybody that's listening, we're also joined by another special guest. He's a celebrity of our own. We admire him very much. His name is Adrian Gonzalez. Hello, Adrian. How are you today? Hi, Alex Lemma. It's a pleasure to be here with all the fans of this podcast. It's finally my time. I'm so excited. Exactly. We're going to close with a very good podcast. Adrian is, for those of you that don't know, Adrian is our program director here in our, the, the degree, the major. He has a lot of relevant inf um, international experience on a particular topic that we're going to talk about today. I know that you're still wondering what this podcast is going to be about. Well, this podcast is about the entertainment industry. We're going to tell you a lot about how the business of the entertainment industry works, film, television, music, theater, sports, and a lot of different experiences. So that's kind of what the podcast is going to be about, but I'm going to let Adrian tell you a little bit about something in particular related to this you know, industry and what we're going to talk about. So I know you guys have talked about global business in different sectors and different industries, but I especially like today's topic because it has to do more with experiences and intangibles, services in the end, which is something that is moving around the world with a lot of the GDP per capita and the GDP worldwide is moved around in service industry. But it's something that I, personally I feel that we underestimate. And there's a lot of human processes involved and a lot, a lot of different industry trends that we have to take into account. So I think it's especially relevant today to analyze service development, which is something we focus on in a specific block in our program and something that going deeper into the entertainment industry, we're going to get to figure out how it go, goes back and connects with the program. Totally. I, I totally agree. I like the part where, uh, I mean, we're going to focus on services. A lot of times people tend to focus more on the products and forget about the services. And I think there is a lot of things in services that we can appreciate and relate to this particular topic. So, uh, <laughs> For everybody that's listening, we're going to, you know, elaborate through segments. This podcast is going to have a lot of different segments. Well, not a lot, like maybe five or six. But uh, we're going to start first with our first segment, which is international regulations and contracts. Uh, part of our um, field of study, we see a lot of different things. And something that I really like is, you know, all, this, all these regulations that you have to follow. And in the entertainment industry, it's really particular. There are a lot of scenarios where you're like, I mean, I could never work there. Or I could never be you know, professionally developed there and you can, we can, everybody can. So one particular topic that I like really like a lot, and it's actually quite, you know, um, sound right now, it's popular right now, it's the distribution rights and intellectual property. It's a whole thing. And we have a particular case that I know that I'm not an expert on that one. <laughs> Lema, I don't know about you. Are you I'm a not, I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight, but I, exactly. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling, I'm not feeling 22. I'm just feeling like I, I don't know. And if you caught my, you know, role, I got you. I got you. You, you got it, but maybe the audience didn't get it. I'm not a Swifty. And today we're living in a world where Swifties are abundant. So intellectual property plays a really cool, you know, role in this new, in this thing that's happening right now with Taylor Swift re-releasing re-recordings. I don't know, but I know that Adrian can tell us a lot about it. But it's really interesting because we can see the business aspect of you know how the music industry is really particular. Like I said, music industry part of the entertainment aspect of it. You know, there's a lot of things that change your business, you, the way you the way you do business in music. So Adrian, 
how can you elaborate on this impact of you know contract distribution rights and all this dilemma that happened with Taylor Swift? Okay, so let me explain. First of all, uh, it's a it's a really interesting industry as you're mentioning. It has a lot of contracts, and for us, it's understanding regulations, operating under those regulations, and negotiating under those regulations as well. So, first of all, um, I'm a full fan, no guilt, zero guilt, super swifty. It's not a secret for people that know me, and I know a lot of people from the program and around that like this topic and like what's happening in the business side of Taylor Swift and Taylor Nation. So, specifically here, uh, I'm not going to go in detail on what's happening because I think it's very well known, but essentially... Uh, when she signed the con contract back when she was starting up, uh, maybe at 15, 16, she didn't get the rights to the recordings of her songs. So she's the performer, she's the author, but she doesn't have the rights to do whatever she wants with her music because someone else owns that music. That music has now been sold around to different people. So she announced that she was going to re-record because being the performer and author, she has the rights to do that. And now with that re-recording, she owns everything. So if someone uses it, for example, in a TV show, or if you want to present the song during a concert, she has full right, full ownership. No one has to be asked. And with the recordings from before, she had to sort of get into an agreement with um, the Big Machine Records and Scooter Braun, etc. So something that I, I think is super interesting is how she's managing to come back with something, if we try to think about it, something she's done before, something we all have access to. We can go back and use the streaming platform to listen to the previous recording. And now we're motivated to come back and sort of see the same thing in a different way and including vault songs including uh new duets including uh, like new arrangements on the same songs so on the creative side i think there's no question that she's doing something that's incredible but on the business side there are a few things that uh, i would like to talk about that are maybe not the typical but thinking about this for example taylor has fans all around the world she knows that but she cannot visit every nation with a concert I've gotten a chance to see her a few times, and every time I've had to travel to a different country. And fortunately for me, I, I had the chance to do so. But a lot of Swifties in Mexico are wondering, like, why is she, like, she coming to Mexico? What's going on? And I think it's, it's a matter of combining with our profession, understanding market selection. In other words, imagine that you guys are working for Taylor Nation and, let's say, Apolaca Group here in Mexico and trying to figure out where the next concert should take place. Some variables that we need to take into account are, for example, how many people will be willing to pay for that concert or interested in that concert that have the amount of money to spend. We need to measure up infrastructure, a bunch of different things. And I always think about this and imagine them from her perspective and think about it. She started country, then she moved to pop, then she moved to alternative. And there's a stereotype that people in Mexico don't like country music. So if she started being a country artist, it makes sense that she didn't choose to come to Mexico at first. So it's a little bit of that. So starting with the profession, I think the market selection for everything makes sense. But now, something that's big for us. Regulations, and especially in this case, how can I have presence in places where I'm not going to get a chance to visit? Why? Because I have to cross the border with all of my infrastructure for my concert, and I'm not able to do that, or I cannot afford to do that, or people are not willing to bring me for some reason. And that brings me to the Starbucks collaboration. I know that that's something that was one of the main things that happened in this uh, distribution of the new Red Bull recording. Here I have my prop. Uh, there's like red cups, and that's red season. And you can see that all around the world, there was like the Empire State turned red. The Los Turos in San Pedro turned red for the season. Like, yes, just incredible. So I was thinking about this, and I was like, why would Starbucks get into an agreement with Taylor Swift? It's obvious for me in terms of Starbucks. 
it's promotion. Now, in the end, a bunch of people that don't even drink coffee think, I want to go in and get the tailored version of the drink. But on the other side, I thought about it, and, I, and it was super interesting to me. When you got to see where in the world the Starbucks location had the Taylor Swift drink, it was essentially the United States, the Philippines, which was super specific, and Latin American countries. Okay. So think about it. Why? Why those countries? How can I bring a part of the experience that's created with Taylor Swift to Swifties where I have not visited before? I know there's Starbucks there. I know it. they have the ingredients. They have the recipe. The only thing is they're going to create a drink that's now called Taylor's version of Red Season or whatever else you want to call it. So merchandising-wise, you can send, like, uh, obviously props and, and, and merchandise from the brand, but it's super difficult if you've ever tried to get I know that you're a fan of other artists and, and them as well. So maybe if you're trying to get merchandise from those, those artists, it gets super complex. They have to cross the border. They take too long. They get lost. You have to pay taxes and you have to pay tariffs. In this case, it all made sense. So that's one big thing that I wanted to take away. First of all, regulations and contracts. She understood something that a lot of people would not see. In the contract, it stated she can re-record after 2020. She did that. So she is negotiating and doing things legally while complying with an agreement. Number two, market selection. Where are the countries going to take place? Where are the countries where the concerts are going to take place? Number three, who can I collaborate with as a company where I can develop a win-win? Have Swift be happy and be a part of the experience. The company wins, the artist wins. And in the end, I also feel that it's a matter of just being super smart in how you're going to develop your, your whole strategy in a way that it feels coherent, new, and exciting for the consumer. So I would say that for now, that's everything that I think is happening right now with Taylor Swift that's super relevant for us in, in global business. Yes, exactly. And, and as you just mentioned, um, I find very interesting that although Taylor is not basically here in Mexico or in Latin America or even in the Philippines, fans can be part of that conversation, that global marketing campaign. And I think it's very business savvy of her and her team to really bring fans that experience, that intangible experience and connect with her and reinvent themselves in a way that Taylor is interested in. Completely. Totally. I like the part where you said that she wants to have a presence where she hasn't been. And that kind of brings me to another topic, which is, you know, localized distribution. So I understand that there is this thing about, you know, obviously everybody's heard of stream, streaming platforms and all that. And there are a lot of different contracts or deals depending on locations, right? I, I don't know if you know anything about that particularly. Completely. So especially in the entertainment industry, think about it. I have a movie or a TV show coming out. I have different platforms all around the world. Something that people underestimate is that that distribution contract happens either per country or per region, which means if you go on Netflix here in Mexico and if you're on Netflix in the United States, you're not going to have access to the same catalog. Why? Distribution. So there are contracts that say you, you, Warner Brothers is the distributor in the United States, but that same movie can be distributed through Universal in Latin America. And that's something that has to be negotiated in the end and designed as a business strategy. What company should represent me in every location? So that's one big thing why people get a VPN and think, oh, Disney Plus is better in the United States or like oh, Amazon Prime in Latin America. So I think that's super important to understand distribution rights. But let me give you another example. I remember back in the day when Suicide Squad was a new movie that was going to come out. And there was a huge deal in terms of negotiation of uh, cinemas here in Mexico. There's Cinemex, Cinepolis, and others, but probably the two main ones are those. And what happens is 
one day from like from one day to another, the the movie distributor uh, said, you know what? Instead of being 50-50 between the movie theater and me as a producer distributor, I want 60-40. And movie theater said, what? Like you're making me lose money. So maybe not lose money, but make less. And Cinepoli said, no way. So I'm not going to show Suicide Squad. And Cinemax accepted, and that was the only movie theater that showed that specific movie. So I thought that was super interesting because we, as global business professionals, have to figure out the best way to connect with every distributor, with every point of sale, with all of my supply chain. So I think that's something that is underestimated. And just to close up on that topic, sometimes people think, why is a movie on a streaming platform or at the movie theater taking so long to get to my city? I don't know, like maybe not the giant blockbusters, but some others take longer. A big thing is, for example, here in Mexico, if you want to have subtitles in your movie, someone has to supervise and validate that those subtitles are correct. It has to be um, given a rating by an official agency in every country, which in some cases takes super long. So people underestimate what regulations you have to comply with. If I want to show this in Europe, I have to go to this entity. I have to make sure they have my information on time. And if not, it's going to be pushed back. So my point here is sometimes we're losing money because we underestimate the power of regulations and compliance. Exactly. I think it's such a challenge, you know, talking about this whole strategy about it's a huge network of interconnected things that make up, you know, the whole business strategy of it. And regulations are really important to understand and they affect it really, you know, thoroughly. And it's a challenge. And speaking of challenges, there is something that happened a while ago. I'm not going to go into detail on that. Just to like to mention how contracts and regulation and the business aspect of it, especially, you know, negotiations and how, for instance, there was a movie that came out, you know, uh, a Marvel movie that was the Black Widow and it was supposed to be in the contract. It said that it was supposed to be released in theaters and then they released it on, on, on another platform on streaming. Uh, so, and it was a whole thing because of the contract and it's a, it's a way of, you know, negotiating and, you know, getting to know how regulations affect the business. As global business students, we don't go into detail on that. We, we don't go into detail on that, but we learn to understand it. We learn to see the opportunity that regulations bring and the challenges uh, that we have to face in order to take those regulations and make them optimal for our strategy in a way. And I, I want to say here, you have to adapt. In global business especially, you have to adapt to everything. So if we're moving to a virtual platform or a streaming platform in this case, the contract has to be modified. Like I'm surprised that Disney did not see this coming where yeah. if your contract says that you're going to get back in deals, which means money from box office, well, if I'm going to show it in streaming platforms at the same time, it's obvious. I mean, everyone will do this. I think Scarlett Johansson being who she is has a lot more power of negotiation. But in the end, this is going to be affecting pretty much everyone. They say that now all deals created with movies, especially at Disney, have this clause in their contracts. So we have to understand that we are going to adapt and we cannot just choose to adapt. Yeah, we're going to adapt the, the way we're going to distribute the movie, but not the contract and the finance and the investment. Like everything has to be coherent for, for them. Right. And the talking thing. about adapting, the pandemic did not only change talent and company contract, but also company and distributor contracts. Completely. I remember that at the beginning of the pandemic, Universal broke a deal with AMC theaters in the United States, which reduced, drastically reduced the theoretical window from like 90 or 45 days down to 17 day theatrical window. 
and I, I think that they experimented with the movie Trolls, mm -hmm. and it was a very big success for Universal, even though it was like pioneering in this whole uh, reduction of theatrical window and getting into streaming, which audiences are obviously like pivoting towards the streaming since they're, they're at home. And I find that very interesting how a company changed so quickly their distribution model. Completely. Okay. I also wanted to just say something that I love about entertainment is that you don't have to be a fan to measure out the value of the business side. Like you're talking about trolls. Maybe trolls is not for us. Yeah. But yeah. it's giant, no? Maybe I'm not a fan of the WFC in sports, but people love it and create so much money. Maybe you're not a Swifty, and now we have bad blood, but that's another story. But in the end, that's like you have to understand. You cannot underestimate the power that that she's having, or like the 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 whole industry is shifting because of something she said, or something she tweeted, or something she did with her contract. So that's something that I really love. We can always find something that we can like inside the industry and go for it, or we can even just appreciate something even if we're not a fan. Totally, exactly. And now. Moving on with the distribution channels and the different logistics and planning of it, we're moving on with our third segment of the podcast, which is logistics and strategic planning. And we know that some of our audience members are big fans of Formula One, which a couple of weeks ago just had a huge event in Mexico City, the Mexico City Grand Prix. And I wanted to come to, to bring into the table the fact that Formula One is this huge event with huge logistics not only moving uh, racing cars, but also spare parts, team members, engines, fuels, and kind of giving it that this like sustainability angle because the Formula One has made recent efforts to make the whole event much more sustainable and, and environmentally friendly. Um, by 2030, the Formula One had, wants to be like completely carbon neutral. Wow. However, um, we know that not only are the cars a big source of pollution, they're not the main source, even though they are like pivoting towards more efficient fuels and low emission fuels. But this whole like logistics of the event, what can you tell us about that? This whole like logistics of moving racing cars, engines, team members from one part of the globe to another, because they have events in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> Mexico, Russia, the United States. Formula One, especially, I think is super interesting in logistics and event planning, as you're mentioning, because think about it, you have at, like at least a dozen races around the world that are all the same. If you think about it, it's still a race. It's still the same racers, but we have to adapt to it culturally. If you go to Mexico, like the environment feels different. Maybe the colors, maybe the, the way or the location of the place. So I think that multicultural uh, environments are relevant, especially in live events. You have to, like, if you think about it, every racer is from a different place. Every team, uh, like, sponsors from a different location on the world. So talking about that, I think multicultural environments are a big thing in Formula One as well. But coming back to logistics, imagine this. You're moving around cars all around the world. And we're not talking about, like, toy cars. We're talking about, like, big cars. And it's not like, oh, get a car from that country and you're just good with that. No, you cannot just rent a car. You have to bring your car from one place to the other, which means what type of transport am I going to take? What type of tariff am I going to pay? Should I pay or not? Because it's going to come in and come out. It's yeah. not necessarily something that's going to stay. At the same time, do I comply with the regulations to drive that car in that location? Because maybe that nation has a different point. And as you're mentioning, the sustainability side of this thing, um, it's not just transporting the car, it's transporting the team. And is that team going to take a private jet and just affect the environment? 
are you gonna throw confetti during the event to celebrate and it's just gonna like create a giant fiasco in terms of sustainability are you gonna make efforts to create clean or use clean energy in all of that approach so i think formula one aside from the multicultural the sustainability the logistics transport makes uh, a huge level of complexity for global business but i would also say that knowing that marketing is a big side of our, our profession as well i really I'm impressed in how uh, Formula One has created an event where people are willing to pay thousands of pesos to sit down and watch brands all day. Like, you become a brand yourself. You have a jersey with, like, Red Bull on the back, and you're becoming, like, a giant advertisement traveling around, around the city. You feel proud of it, and you don't pay thousands of pesos to exactly. watch it. Being bombarded constantly with, like, brands and ads and advertisement. Everything. It gets crazy. And what I really love about it is that people still feel happy. So it's just getting together all of the different supply chain activities, logistics, event planning, uh, talent from multicultural environments and, and putting together something valuable. Yeah, totally. I think that this goes far beyond low emission fuels, using low emission fuels. It, it also like englobes point-to-point -point transport and logistics activities that are truly efficient, both in time, cost, and also protective protection of the, the equipment because these cars are extremely expensive exactly and it's the whole thing logistics of everything and event planning i know that uh you brought a couple days ago to the table the, the pal norte event and I, I it's the whole thing and it's uh the logistics of it and you know a lot of the multicultural factors that you said every country has their own thing and you know bringing artists from all over the place it's a whole management and logistics thing that you have to really understand and we study it in the program and it's super cool learning to you know see the bigger picture and how logistics not only affects i know that a lot of people say oh logistics is just like transport and it's like in a particular industry and that's it but it's much more than that and in the entertainment industry it's very uh i don't know it's fascinating in a way i i'm gonna give you one personal experience uh, a few years ago ariana grande was supposed to come into monterrey uh, tickets were sold i had tickets to the event and then logistically something that no one was expecting is a day before it was in arena monterrey there was like a disney on ice show and for some reason the disney on ice show said we're gonna get our ice rink out tonight well yeah but no one estimated that the environment feels wet like it was physically not a, in the conditions for the concert to take place and it got canceled yeah. so thinking about the technical stuff in logistics it's always like oh so yes, we got out, but it was not in the conditions that I was expecting. No one said about like nothing about it, and it just affected. Imagine how many people got their money back, and how many people maybe even didn't have an income because of it. So yeah. it's more complex than it sounds. I am still mad about that. I think that <laughs> Ariana would have made a great concert here, and it's so it's so sad. But Ariana, if you're if you're hearing this by any chance in the in the heavens. <laughs> Come to Monterrey again. I promise we're not gonna have a, another ice event. She's before. like, thank you, next Dylan, but okay. Thank you, next, but I remember it all too well, <laughs> Um This is why we can have nice things. But anyway. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I'll come up with another one later on. Don't worry. <laughs> I love logistics. I think it's a really important uh, thing in our program, and it's really cool to study and learn. And I know that I'm a Marvel fan myself, and I've always, I've always wondered, you know. You see the movie and you're like, okay, so there's a whole thing behind the movie. And the logistics part of it is like, okay, and not just the logistics part, the strategic planning of a movie. And not, and not just Marvel, any other movie. 
it's where to shoot, how to shoot, uh, when, where, everything. It's like, have you ever seen a movie and you're like, wow, they shot that on, on location? For instance, Dune. Dune just came out. And I know that they sh I haven't seen it. I'm going to see it soon, probably. Uh, they shot on location, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a whole thing. Like, okay, you're going to shoot on location. And, of course, moving the actors there, it's one thing. But how about the crew, the, the equipment and everything? And how do you know where to shoot if you want to film a scene in the desert? How do you know that you're going to want to film in Jordan? Or if you want to film in the desert in, I don't know, in Nevada? I don't know. There's a whole strategic planning behind movie making that I really love. I think that moving people and the COVID, COVID has been a really important factor as well. The chance factor and the whole business uh, strategy that you're like, okay, so you had a plan, COVID came in, it affected everything in a way that you have to rethink everything. And I think it's one of the challenges today in every industry, in particular the, in the entertainment industry, how to adapt, like I said at the beginning, we have to adapt constantly we adapt the regulations to the regulations. We have to adapt to these new emerging uh, things, you know? And I just wanted to mention that really quickly. I know that it's, I could go on and on about how I love <laughs> how they shoot a Marvel movie in space or whatever. I don't know. They haven't done but that. But I have a question for you, Alex. Um, especially Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Most of them are, if you leave at the last credit, which I'm sure you do because you wait all the way over into the last second of the movie, and they kick you out of the movie theater. Um, you most of them are gonna have a logo that says the the state of Georgia in the United States. Totally. Most of those movies are shot in Atlanta, Georgia. The question is why? Why? Because I know that you know yes, the answer. If not, you're not graduating. Oh no, yeah, I'm graduating. Um, so let me know. Yes, I can prove that I can graduate because I know the answer to this question. It is something that is you know government incentives and you know kind of movie clusters in a way that. Have you ever wondered? Like Adrian said, Atlanta is one of them, but there's also one in, in the United States, Atlanta. And then there's Vancouver in, in Canada. Um, there's, uh, like, I, I think you told me, like, uh, Jordan as yeah, well. It was, that's right. uh, yeah. Um, now that you just mentioned June, actually, June was filmed in Wadi Rum, Jordan. And right. also, the uh, first Star Wars of the new sequel trilogy was also filmed there. It's a, so yeah. Jordan has a very strong, as you just mentioned, incentive and tax credit and movie grant program to really attract this very, big budget productions to come into Jordan and film there. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, and also like Australia as well. And it's the whole thing because, okay, so you're going to go into this uh, city that grants, you know, incentives and tax, um, to, you know, a lot of different things that make it really financially feasible for you to shoot a movie there and not like on location or wherever there's sets. And also, because everybody thinks that they shoot every movie in Hollywood, for instance, but, uh, not every uh, every movie is shot wherever they want, but it's a whole thing about government incentives and how to take advantage of you know those factors in your overall strategy, and you know um, it can be cost efficient in a way to film in a film in cluster like in Atlanta, Vancouver, Jordan, Australia, and whatnot. So yes, and just to be even more specific than that for people that don't have context, because I know you you guys are super smart and you know this. But in, in, in global business, we also take like economics classes that explain, for example, the government of Georgia offers a subsidy, which means a part of the budget is paid for by the state because they want their logo to appear in the end of the MCU movies and they want us to visit Atlanta and think, cool, this is where they shot the movie. Number two, they can also say, especially with COVID regulations, right now, 
we're gonna everything in terms of COVID testing and uh, safety in the in the location. We're gonna cover those costs. We're gonna allow you to not pay taxes that you normally would have to pay because you're opening up this location. So that's the type of thing that would make it cost effective, which in the end makes sense for movie making industries. Exactly. I think that it is really important for a person that is in that industry to know that the overall strategy takes a lot of different things into consideration. I literally just saw uh, the Eternals movie and I loved it. Of course I did. Uh, <laughs> and it got me thinking, you know, I'm the one that like looks at a movie and I'm, I'm, I love to see how it's doing overseas and how much money it's making or whatever. And, you know, see the news about it and what the critics are saying and all that. And then I saw that this movie had, you know, not just Eternals, but also Shang-Chi, for instance. Certain movies in certain countries are not being, you know, um, shown. They're not being distributed there or whatever. Because there's some another factor that is coming into play, you know, the political factor, the geopolitical and sociocultural factor of it, and how certain movies with certain elements in it are either banned, prohibited, or not allowed, or whatever you might want to call it in some country. And I think that it's really interesting because I was like, okay, so it can go, it can be allowed, but then... A person of the crew said something bad about our government, and that's it. It's a whole thing that is not just economics, financials, or logistics, or whatever. It's geopolitical factors that kind of affect the whole strategy. So I think in this industry, we can see some, you know, cases of these problems over the last couple of years, especially right now with, for instance, Eternal Shang-Chi. I think those were the movies. But uh, I find that really interesting, honestly. So... To talk specifically about Shang-Chi, this is a movie that was literally created thinking about the Chinese market. We want a Marvel character that connects excellently towards that culture. An amazing movie. Everyone, it comes out in the United States and around the world, people freak out. And then they think, oh, what is it going to do in China? Like, we can only expect billions of dollars coming out of it. Surprise. The president of China says this movie is not coming in, which is completely legal according to their government. Why? Because this character, this actor that was born in China and raised in, the, in Canada spoke poorly about, um, about the, the government of China in the past. So we're not going to support him becoming a celebrity and representing China. He was literally like, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. <laughs> so in, in that case, it's, it, like, imagine the amount of money being lost by Marvel just because of something that was like a casting choice and maybe a, something that someone tweeted or said back in 2010. And it completely shuts down the possibility of making that much money. So it just gets incredible to understand those concepts. Yeah. The, mo like, the moment I knew that happened, I was like, come on. I'm, I was crumbling to pieces. I was like, I was not doing fine. I didn't like it. And that also raises the question, how will Marvel manage that situation moving forward because we know that marvel is this very large interconnected universe where, where actors appear in multiple movies how will they manage in the future because they can if i were marvel i would not afford losing the chinese box office for, for a single actor completely it's such a thing it's i mean in, in the end you still want to be effective but you also want to protect your own you know what i mean if we know that it's a giant success am i going to recast the character and just yeah like even talking about that, I know that I was talking to someone about this the other day and thinking about the possibility of moving around with production and, and specific choices that people make, 
Um, right now, Black Panther is being shot, like the new Black Panther movie. We know that Chadwick Boseman passed away. So there's a rumor going around that, that uh, Leticia Wright, which is the sister of, the, of, of this actor in the movie, uh, is going to take the place. And then what happens? She's an anti-vaxxer. She doesn't want to get vaccinated. Cool. She can still shoot in the United States because there was not a requirement to be vaccinated. Like, it was not a regulation. However, what happened? She got into, like, an accident. She went back to England because she wanted to, like, take care of her health back in England. And now she cannot get back into the United States because she's not vaxxed. Yeah. yeah. So, the whole production is now shut down because of this. Are you going to recast? Are you going to change the story? Are you going to move production to London? Are you going to force her in a contract to be vaxxed? Like, yeah. imagine that level of being in that, like, Alex Gillen would die. I would having that job. Way, like, but, like in, in, a, in a way, it's, it's super interesting to see that that's still business. No? Yes, that's still, of course. Like, we tend to forget that. You, we see it, of course, as fans or people that are not in that particular industry. You see it as the, the easiest thing to do. Like, oh, just get her to do this thing or move over there and whatever. But it's a whole thing. And it's not so easy in, in that sense. So, And I feel like if you're listening to the podcast right now up to this moment, you know that it's a whole thing. We've talked about a lot of things. And you know it's a complicated situation. It's not that easy. So that's on logistics and strategic planning, I would say. I think we covered that pretty well. Um, we can move on to another, you know, segment, another segment of the, of the podcast, which is, you know, trends. I think that today we are living in a world where new trends are coming in, technological trends, uh, society trends, cultural trends, whatever. There's a lot of different trends that affect, especially the entertainment industry. And as you just mentioned, Alex, um, I don't, I have been seeing recently a very strong industry consolidation in the sense that studios are making strategic moves in order to control the content. I've, I've recently heard the, the phrase, content is king. That means that the company that owns the most IPs, the most like well-known characters, the most franchises, is probably the most financially and fan favorite successful. So starting off with the Disney Fox merger, which was valued at $71 billion in 2017 and finalized in 2019, um, what can you tell us about that strategic move on Disney's behalf and what does that mean for the future of the company? It's super interesting as a case, uh, so I'm going to speak now. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, yes, in this case, something that I always ask people is like, why do you think Disney wanted to get into a merger and buy Fox? Thinking about, yes, $71 billion, but just to give it some perspective, Marvel was worth $4 billion when they bought it. Star Wars was... Lucasfilm film was worth four billion. Pixar was worth seven billion. So it's like multiply all of those accumulated by five, and it's still not the same amount. And people go, "Oh, Los Simpson." I'm like, "Yeah, right." Like, are you kidding me? No. So it's not Los Simpson. It's not Avatar. It is not necessarily the IPs. It is, as you're mentioning, the presence, the commercial presence worldwide. Fox had more commercial presence in nations where Disney was not the number one. So by buying this, what they're buying is the IP. Yes but also the offices, the networks, the distribution channels that they already had in places like the UK, India, China, and other countries in Asia, Latin America, etc. So I think in the future, yes, you're going to see content from Fox and 20th Century Fox and, and Fox Networks, etc. in the platforms, but it also means that you're going to see more uh, content that is multicultural. Maybe Bollywood movies coming around to all parts of the world, Maybe more uh, like well-known 
TV shows and content from Asia coming around to Mexico and to other places in America. So I think that's going to be a little bit on the future. And just to be specific, like they bought 20th Century Fox and starting next year, we have every December one Avatar movie and one Star Wars movie every year, like one back and forth. That means forever taken. Like five, there's five Avatar sequels announced. Yeah. It's like, it's just like, yeah. crazy wow. to think about it. So I'm just going to give you a hint. If you're ever interested in what company is Disney trying to buy in the future, look at their parks and look at the licensing deals they have. Examples, they had the licensing deal with Avatar and then they bought the films. They had the licensing deal with Star Tours through Star Wars, they bought Lucasfilm. They had that show that was uh, Indiana Jones, they bought Lucasfilm, which owns that. They bought Muppets when they had Muppet Vision as a license. They bought uh, Marvel when they had like specific things they wanted to do, not necessarily in the parts. So anyway, just a quick hint. Of Disney magic around business. Yeah, and in that same line, you just mentioned like the little hints in the parts. We know that Warner Media, which owns Warner Brothers, um, has a license, has given a license to Universal for their Universal Studios parks in the like the worsening world of Harry Potter, right? And Warner Media recently merged with Discovery, which Discovery is not that big of a company, but it owns these brands such as Animal Planet, TLC. Discovery, which is like more like nature and science-based channel. Um, what do you think of that, that, that merger? I think it's interesting and it's, it's also coherent because Disney bought Nat Geo. So yeah. it's like, it makes sense because now we're trying to become the same thing in two different approaches. Um, I think nowadays, especially with access to information, people are looking to, vet, like, to have a variation in confidence. I don't want the same thing all the time. I want my platform to have things in animals and documentaries and also TV shows and comedy and drama. So I think it makes a ton of sense, especially thinking about competition between those two giant brands. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And well, I think that for a long, for a long time, global audiences were used to importing like American entertainment, but now we're seeing like the complete reverse. We're seeing international entertainment being imported by global audiences. For example, Squid Game, which mm -hmm. was, which is the biggest hit on Netflix. Uh, we, we have, I don't know, like, uh, La Casa de Papel, uh -huh. which is a huge hit. Club de Cuervos, like, Club de Cuervos, talking about Mexico, or like, para Parasites, as a movie, that right. like, yeah, it just gets crazy about, like, to think about it. And we're gonna represent multicultural environments, even in American-based entertainment, like Shang-Chi, Mulan, we're gonna see, like, a Black Panther representing something different, and maybe Black Widow and Captain Marvel as a different type of sector. So I'm just expecting the next Mexican superhero. It's like Salma Hayek did a good job, like, but I need an extra. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I'm not going to go into detail on that. Of course, there are rumors that maybe we'll see another character soon in a Doctor Strange movie. I don't know. I'll uh, I'll make a podcast on that later on. Um, but yeah, I wanted to like. It's a whole thing, you know, like it's, it's a whole thing what you just said. And I speak like keeping this, uh, you know, vision on trends. I think that technology is also a big part of, you know, a trend that's coming in new technology every day, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, data and all that. And I think we can see a lot of those in the entertainment industry, for instance. I don't know. I've been I've been to Disney. I've been to Disney a couple of times in the parks. We um I've seen attractions that have changed and, you know, they incorporate technology. And I know that I might not be the best person to say this. I know that you might know a lot more, Adrian, but I've seen how technology has slowly been incorporating 
And it's not like super drastic, like, oh my God, disruptive innovation. But it's, you know, how these uh, new trends are coming into place, you know, a lot of different technology that is applied to how data is managed, uh, new um, technological, how do I call them? Infrastructure? Infrastructure in a way, yes. Um, I find that really interesting. And I feel like sometimes when you say a technological trend, you just don't think that it's in the entertainment industry. You might say that it's in a financial company, if it's artificial intelligence or whatever, or that it's virtual reality and maybe um, another industry or in the medical industry, you have um, augmented reality for surgeries or whatever. So I find that really interesting that trends and technological trends can be applied in the entertainment industry, like I just said, for an, in, in example. So. I love that. I just wanted to let that out because, you know. <laughs> Imagine that, that I told you or I told me. I'm going to get to see uh, virtual reality-wise a concert, first row, Taylor Swift, for $50. Exactly. Like, I would buy three tickets. Totally. So that, like, I, like, you know what I mean? I so, feel like that's kind of something that we might be spoiling for someone or we might be spoiling the secrets of a company. But I think that's really feasible in the future. I don't see... I. If you would have told me this 10 years ago, I would have been like, what are you talking about? This is impossible. But nowadays we see this as an opportunity, as a possibility because of all the technology. And of course I would go to a, of course, a Taylor Swift concert. I wouldn't say no to that. <laughs> that little monster is coming out of you. A little I know. monster is I know. coming out of me, but uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And technology is not only changing how we consume entertainment, but also how we are producing it and manufacturing it. Completely. And I know that you're a big fan of this show, The Mandalorian. Sure. And that's the perfect example because the show literally pioneered with the volume, which is this 360-degree giant screen with exactly. like AR, like super-defined AR, and that changed the game. Yeah. That that meant that production didn't need to go to another country or to another landscape. They can virtually produce any landscape they want, like in a video game, and stay like in a closed set in a studio that drastically reduces costs and gives like the show a very realistic feeling. Yeah, totally. And it's quality content. Like it's not only fan favorite, but it's also like award winning in terms yep. of like production styles. Totally. So amazing. Yeah. For trends, I think we got a pretty good idea of how they're changing the industry for good because a lot of different opportunities are arising and I love that. And moving on to our second to last subject here in the podcast, I wanted to go a little bit on quickly on the global vision as global business students. Of course, we have this global vision, um, you know, ever since we come here and when we leave, we have this global vision. And I just wanted to give an example of how, for instance, when you say global vision, global expansion, you might think that it's in certain industries, not in the entertainment industry. For instance, Cinepolis expanded from uh, some Mexican company that expanded uh, overseas, for instance, to the Middle East. So a lot of markets like Oman, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and, and a lot of different countries as well. And you might think it's an expansion in this industry. And it's, I mean, even people in this industry move and provide services every to other countries. For instance, we have Guillermo El Trol that does producer, producing and directing and all that. And it's in this industry. And I feel like I had to mention it that when you think of global expansion or or this topic, you might think that it's in a financial industry or in a, a com in in a commerce industry, you know, in like a international trade industry or whatever. But entertainment industry is, you know, you can expand 
globally and you have this global vision. So I just wanted to let this put this on the table because I feel like I had to mention it. It's part of, you know, have keeping this global vision from day one till you graduate and and this industry is I love it. I, I don't know. I think I, personally I had the experience being in India and talking to people from India and asking them about Mexican companies because I'm the type of person and I know you guys are as well, where you feel proud of where you're from. Personally, being from Mexico, I wanted to see what was out there, you know? And they said, oh, there's no Mexican companies. And I started researching and I said, Cinepolis is here in India. And they're like, Cinepolis is, is from Mexico? I could not believe it. And I thought it was super funny because um, I got to see videos. I didn't get to see uh, Cinepolis there because I thought it was like, why would I come to India to go to Cinepolis? But anyway, um, it's like tropicalizing. What type of meals do they have? What is the pricing system? How do they choose the movies? But the law and the system stayed the same. So... I think it's super interesting to understand how a company from where you're from, maybe Mexico, maybe somewhere else, can expand effectively. In the United States, there's Cinepolis, but Cinepolis is for a whole different segment. It's like a VIP, super luxury type of movie theater experience where it's like a few tens of dollars just to get in. And then on top of that, it's like restaurant and gourmet experiences and menus. So you can always adapt. You can always think about new ways of connecting to a new consumer, especially in the international sector, and be proud of where you're from and, and the types of companies that you can bring from other nations. Totally. I totally agree on that. And you couldn't have said it better. And we can kind of close on global vision with that. You know, feel proud about where you're from and always keep a global vision. But, you know, remember where you're from and try to bring the best of you abroad and the best abroad here. In whatever vocabulary you want to. Yeah, cannot cannot like be that. more proud. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, from our segments, we have kind of reached our, the end of the podcast. We've talked about, you know, international regulations and contracts, logistics and strategic planning, trends and how they're very important in this industry. And, you know, keeping this global vision, like we said. And I feel like we've come to this uh, conclusion in the podcast where we have to... Um, I was talking with Adrian a couple days ago and he said, you know, link your profession with something that you like. And I wanted to let you not close the podcast, but tell us a little bit about how we can connect this passion of ours to our profession and how it can be really good in the future for us. I think we've tried today to give you experiences where we can combine services and entertainment with your profession. I think the key to success in your everyday life is going to be to find a mixture of what you love to do and what you're good at. So yeah. the career prepares you to be good at something, but it's also interesting to combine it with whatever you're passionate about. Maybe the three of us, Lema Dillon and myself, are passionate about entertainment and other stuff. It's not like we're one-sided in any way. But that motivates me and sort of, I'm, I'm in my free time, I'm looking information up and stuff, and that makes me happy. So my, my invitation here would be, for anyone listening, is understand whatever your profession, if it's global business, great. If it's another thing, amazing. It's like, how can you combine it with your passions? And if you find that connection, you're not going to feel like you are working a day in your life. And I just wanted to say, um, in the end, you have to make the decision on your own. It's not like living for someone else. One of my favorite Taylor Swift lyrics goes, don't you worry, your pretty little mind. People throw rocks at things that shine, but they can take what's ours. So that means... People are always going to complain and they're always going to make fun or, or something. But it's like you have to be coherent with yourself, know what you love, and go for it. And if you invest the time and your talent towards it, I promise you, you're going to be successful and mostly happy. So I hope that you take that away. 
Yeah, I love it. So thank you, Adrian. I, I really want to leave you guys with that. Uh, you couldn't have said it better, Adrian. We have to find our passion and find what we, what is going to make us happy in a way. I really discovered a very uh, recently a word, ikigai. I remember that. It's finding your everything. You, you kind of connect what kind of give, wants to give you money, your passion, and what you're good at, and what you're not good at, whatever. And finding this common spot, common ground where you combine everything and it gives you the passion, the happiness that you want in the end. So. Thank you so much for your time, Adrian. Thank you so much for being here with us. I, I, I learned a lot from our conversation, but I know that everybody that's listening might have learned twice or three times as much because I know that it's a whole thing. The, internet, the entertainment industry is so fascinating for me and for all of us here. And I hope that you at home kind of felt this passion that we have for this industry and understand that global business, the business aspect of it, the global business program gets you... Um, gives you a lot of different things uh, to apply everywhere. And so find your passion. And I don't know if Lemma, you want to say something to everybody that's listening, or we can close this up and call it a great episode. Yeah, I know that many, many of you guys out there, our audience, our beloved audience, wants to work in the entertainment industry. But as you just mentioned, and I got mentioned, find your purpose in life and combine what you're good at with what you're passionate about. And if that makes you happy, go for it. Awesome. Well, from all of us here at uh, Let's Get Global, it was lovely having you here. Thanks again, Adrian. And we'll see you next time on the next Let's Get Global. Long live BGV. <laughs>